City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer working in the theater seminars. Now in their 27th year, coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars provide a wonderful opportunity to learn from the panelists the realities of working in the theater. Today's seminar is devoted to playwrights, directors, and choreographers. We will learn something about how they became professionals, their work ethic, and their reasons for remaining and working in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing. I think you will enjoy and learn from today's experience. But now, let me introduce our moderators for this seminar. First, a distinguished member of the theatrical community and Chairman of the Board of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, George White, and Pia Lindstrom, theater critic and TV personality. Thank you very much, Pia and George. Thank you, Isabel. I'm going to begin by introducing our panelists on the far right. Again, not a political statement here. Uh, uh, David S. Bjornsson, who uh, has been artistic director of the Classic Stage Company and is currently represented on Broadway uh, with the production of Ride Down Mount Morgan. On my immediate right, uh, Lynn Taylor Corbett, who uh, is, uh, claims that her understandably proudest achievement is her son, Sean Taylor Corbett, <laughs> but has also choreographed the Titanic and is the director and choreographer uh, of Sway. And next to me, we have David Laveau, who is represented by The Real Thing on Broadway. But he's a heavyweight director, having done many other things, which we will discuss. Next to him is playwright Becky Mode, whose first play, Fully Committed, is a smash hit. You want to know how she did it. And next to her, Richard Nelson, who has got uh, The Dead, James Joyce's The Dead, is on Broadway right now. He's also honorary associate artist of the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I want to know how, I, how a guy from Rhinebeck, New York, <laughs> got to be <laughs> in the Royal Shakespeare Company. Well, about, about 14 years ago, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company did a play of mine um, called Principia Scriptoriae. Not a very good title, but they did it. And it, uh, it went fantastically well. And uh, the week after it opened, they asked to commission a play. And I wrote a play for them called Some Americans Abroad. Then the week after that opened, they asked to commission a play. And on and on and on it went until over uh, about a 13-year period, they did nine plays of mine. And by that time, I think they just they figured they had, had to give me some kind of title. And uh, I became an honorary associate artist of the RSC. I mean, it's a, an extraordinary thing because, extraordinary thing because it's, um, for, for someone who doesn't live there, someone who isn't English, to be, to be sort of embraced and given a, a home like I was is truly, uh, truly remarkable. Mm. 
Well, now you've uh, you've adapted, which uh, is something I wanted to, I think, start with. Uh, this wonderful uh, production going on now uh, on Broadway of The Dead. And uh, you've also directed it and uh, uh, done, adapted it and done the lyrics. And there has a lot of, been a lot of talk about whether playwrights should direct their own work. And of course, this is sort of your own work, but it's also James Joyce. Uh, would you perhaps give us a little insight on, the, on what you do when you adapt as opposed to write? Uh, something from, from scratch, as it were. Right, well, I, and I also made the coffee every morning. For the <laughs> I forgot that. You're absolutely right. Um, well, the, the, the adaption of Joyce was, it was, was hard, but um, it, it, this particular piece came out of two things. One, my wanting to write or try to, try to um, create what I would call a Chekhovian musical, something that was seemingly contradictory, something that would be a, a musical based on, on a small incident uh, a, a small gesture. And at the same time, I wanted to work with this amazing composer, Sean Davy, who is Irish, lives in Dublin. And so the idea of, uh, when you start to think of a subject, the idea of, uh, of Joyce comes to mind, obviously, when you're thinking of, 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 of Ireland and, and Sean. And the, the, the dead part of the Dubliners was the perfect sort of adaptation for this concept of this Chekhovian musical. So the adaptation was really quite, um, quite simple. I tried to keep as much of the Joyce as I could. I tried to embrace the Joyce as much as I could. Uh, I tried to frame it in a different way um, because it was a play and not an adaptation. Trying to find those things that make it a, a play. I mean, just a tiny little uh, difference. In the short story, there's a great revelation. There's a great moment where the main female character remembers something. And this happens at the end of the, of, of the story, really, almost towards the, towards the very end. And in the, in the adaptation, we put this much, much earlier, so that there could be an evolution of drama, just a, a dramatic event through the, through the story. So um, trying to bring something into a sort of a theatrical context was, uh, was, uh, was the journey, and um, um, one that... Uh, at the end of the day, we kept on saying, are we being faithful to Joyce? Would, would uh, Mr. Joyce roll over in his grave or just you know, accept <laughs> this? And hopefully he, he, he's okay. He hasn't appeared as a ghost yet. <laughs> the two Davids are, in fact, doing plays of living playwrights. Now, that must present a problem. You can't exactly start futzing with the... <laughs> what do you do? It's another kind with of... Arthur Miller, when he comes and says, that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, it's been a remarkable experience, and, and uh, uh, I, I'm so struck, and this is, may sound a little uh, silly, but I'm so struck by his youthfulness, by his, um, his uh, you know, fearless sense of experimentation. He, um, it actually was um, uh, really wonderful to work with him on this project because he encouraged all sorts of expression and interpretation. And uh, obviously the, uh, the playwright is the primary artistic ex expression, the play itself, and that's where we all take our inspiration from that. But, um, but when, when that happened, then uh, he, he gave back something, you know, and he began to, he began to re respond to what we were bringing to the table. And it becomes a, a lovely kind of dance, you know, where, where you respond to the play and the playwright responds back. 
and you end up creating something uh, that's that's quite unique, a synthesis of those two, of those two expressions. How did Tom Stoppard? Well, Tom, I mean, it's interesting. Um, you listening to, to Richard because the, I think there is a there's a clear distinction in my mind between uh, those writers who have a, a practical and, and active experience of, of the theatre and those writers who, who write for the theatre who, who uh, choose to um, be much more private and not be directly engaged in the, in the process of, of production. Um, there, there are advantages for a director in both of those things at different mm -hmm. times. But um, just, uh, and Tom Stoppard is, is certainly somebody who um, wants to be involved very closely in that process, but not, not in a way that um, intervenes. He's extremely uh, graceful in that way. Um, I was thinking, just leaving Tom aside for the moment, um, that the, um, the closest experience I've had uh, with a living playwright is, is with Harold Pinter, the, the, <coughs> the British writer Pinter. And, um, I, this got so close on one occasion that I actually ended up directing him in his own play, mm -hmm. uh, No Man's Land, um, where I made a kind of contract with him at the outset, which was that um, he, he, he had to come to the rehearsal as an actor. And then on Friday evenings, we could have a drink and he could be the writer, <laughs> which he was very happy to do. Um, um, for, for, for those of you who don't know Harold Pinter, he's, one of the things he's very famous for is, is, is being um, uh, really very, very rigorous and severe about the accuracy with which his text is, is delivered. In fact, this is simply because um, it's written so well, and it is true that if you deviate from it, um, then you, you can feel a quantum uh, loss of energy. Um, uh, but I do recall going into his dressing room um, one evening during the, the run of No Man's Land um, to give him a note because I felt that he was coming in on a particular line rather too quickly uh, and this was causing um, a, a moment of really incomprehension in, in the narrative for the audience so I uh, of course, brought this to his attention, as you would. You know, the director of an actor said, no, actually, you can't do that. You must. We really need the space there. So, and he said to me, initially, he bridled, rather. He said, look, well, look, um, look I, think, I think we found, in the, as we're playing it in with the audience, we found that actually we need to move it on there. And I said, well, actually, that's not really the experience of sitting out there where I am, Harold. He said, well, you know, I mean, it, just, it feels just more comfortable to get on with it there. And uh, finally, I sort of feel this was going to be a rather a tense exchange. You know? I said, look, I, you know, I think it's, I have to tell you, uh, not only do I think this is a pause, <laughs> but I think you need a silence. You know? And um, at this point, I had an inspiration, which was, of course, to pick up the script. And, and I was hoping, again, <laughs> that this was going to be borne out. And I got to the moment, and indeed, he had written silence. Mm. And oh. I could put it, and I said, there you are, you see. And he, there was this silence mm -hmm. that followed this. And he then said to everyone else in the dressing room, because they were all sharing a dressing room in this small theatre in London, he said, what the director is telling me here <laughs> is when the writer wrote silence, <laughs> he knew what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I shall observe that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Becky, what's your take on this? Now, you, of course, I, there's a lot of things I want to ask you. I'm just bubbling over with things. Um, your first play got on, basically. And how did you do that? 
And tell us about the collaboration with the, you didn't direct your own work. No, no. no. And, I mean, I was thinking my collaboration was really, it was with the director, but also with the actor, because we developed it together. So I would take my cues from him, and that most of the time, when something wasn't working, when it, it wasn't sounding right to me, it was generally my fault. Something that I had written wasn't working. So that was, that was a real education to me. And we had a wonderful director, so, you know, I did. I learned a lot from both of them. How my first play got on is a mystery to me. <laughs> I can't answer I mean, that. You didn't throw it up over a transom. They don't have transoms anymore. But, <laughs> but you took it from your own life. You were a, you a, right, a co-check girl and a waitress. And this is good preparation for you know, writing. Yeah, it, well, it's good material. And I, I guess the only thing I can say is the desire not to be a co-check girl and a waitress <laughs> was a strong motivating force. And also just working for a long time, workshopping it, working with the director and the actor, doing readings, getting feedback. Um, well, let's back up before the co-check girl, because you, you didn't just decide uh, to write a play, did you? I mean, you must have been trained. or have, you totally I was trained that. as an actor. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't a very Where? good actor. I was telling you beforehand. <laughs> As I said, why didn't she star in her own play if she's an well, actress? <laughs> I wasn't good enough. And I was lazy. It takes a lot of work to do what this actor does. So I guess sort of as an observer, I was around writers and directors and actors and the theatrical process for a long time, but never as a writer. And then, um, you know, I, after stopping acting, I floundered around and I did theater criticism and I did various other things and sort of stumbled upon writing, really. And then submitted, the, again, how did this start? Uh, how did it come to I'm be? I'm thinking of people in the audience that want to have written a play or <laughs> want to write a play and here you are as uh, exhibit A. And having had <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess in our particular case, one, one, one step in the journey was that I developed it, just working with the actor, we started off in my living room and with improvs and putting a tape recorder on and then I would sort of listen to it and transcribe it and develop it and make a story out of it, develop the characters. As far as the, how we got from here to there, at one point there was an article about the actor uh, in, a, in the newspaper saying sort of reservationist takes his last call because he got a job at, uh, as an understudy for rent. <laughs> and it was all about what life in this dank reservation office. And in the article it said, and he's working on a one-person show, and from the article a producer called us, um, and that sort of lit a fire under me. I, we were sort of in the vague phase. There were sort of pages here and pages there. And he was like, well, I'd like to look at the text. And I was like, oh, there is no text. Uh -oh. uh, so it sort of motivated me to do things faster than I might have. And that was a stroke of luck. Um, but really, the, the main thing I would say is the first reading was in my apartment, in my living room with 10 people. And then we got somebody to lend us the theater and invited more people and just kept working at it, truly, for three years. And, listening to what people had to say and taking the first one, which was about two hours and 15 minutes, to make it one hour and 15 minutes and deciding that if 10 people told you this part was boring or this part didn't work, that there must be something to it and just keep trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. Lynn, the, yes. you're a choreographer as well as a director. Yes, correct. And it seems as though the line between the two is blurring these days. I think so. I think um, I've been fortunate enough to direct um, 
you know, in regional theater, and that's been fantastic because it's something I, I've always wanted to do. My father was a writer, so I've always been attracted to serious material, and in my commissions I usually deal with serious subject matter, but when I'm hired as a choreographer, often I'm hired on to projects that are, um, uh, you know, more joyful and, and more like pure entertainment. So it, it, it's really fantastic to bring both, uh, I, I guess, both sets of skills into one project. And it's interesting listening to the writers and the directors because we started with a word, swing, and um, just had no script or outline even, really, initially. And just, just the thought that it was a state of mind, not a time, that it, it wasn't just about the 30s and 40s, that it was our American expression in terms of our American music and folk dance. Um, because it all arose out of youth culture and, and it has re-arisen out of youth culture. And so um, it was kind of a process, you know, such as you had, I think, really a trial and error. We had three workshops. Mm. We, you know, gathered the old favorite songs that you say cannot do a show without these, and of course half of them fell away. <laughs> then I was so lucky to have Anne Hampton Calloway and Everett Bradley and Casey, you know, to, to write new material so that you lay the old and the new side by side and say, what, what is it about this that vibrates in us as a people? Um, I found that in working on it, that the joy, um, the joy that it brings is as deep as, you know, quote, serious material. It's sort of a, a different kind of um, material than I've ever involved, been involved with. And as Richard said, you know, trying to be true to, you know, was I true to swing? I, um, I found that we could be true to the spirit of swing, and we had to amplify quite a lot of the forms to, to fit into the theater, because they're, they're uh, generally forms that are, are done in a small competition area or in that kind of arena. Mm -hmm. So we, we finally made, I said, I just want it to be an event that tumbles off the stage and hits you, and you never know what's going to happen next. And, and uh, that in itself was, was a sort of strange authorship that involved many, many people and a lot of collaboration, but, you know, ultimately was just the most remarkable experience I've had in the theater. Well, now, you're a kid. How do they, I mean, I know, I know about swing. Uh, and uh, what did you, where did you go for your research? Well, first, I, I have to say that I, I grew up, I have five sisters, I have a huge family, we grew up in Denver, and um, in the car, we would uh, sing those songs, because my dad, you know, sang them from, I guess, the war, and, you know, so we would go along, you know, shrieking out at the top of our lungs, I'll be seeing you, and you know, all the tears flowing and so forth. So we were a pretty passionate bunch. But um, then I, I really did a lot of research. Paul Kelly originated the idea, and Paul brought it to the Frankel organization, and there had been a lot of research collected. And then I just, you know, I, I, I went to competitions, I reviewed competitions, I read all the big band books, and I just try to put myself in that state of mind, which is really a special place to be. And, um, and it was just a, a lot of meeting the gurus of the different forms of the dances and uh, the new forms and the old forms and, um, you know, really traveling all over the country. I, I felt I was a Charles Corral to <laughs> swing <laughs> for a while and I had a wonderful time and, you know, just feel I grew a lot as a person in terms of the need to collaborate with so many people too, because it's like speaking 14 languages. You just mm -hmm. can't do it one, two, three. You have to give over and, and pull people in. And I had a great team. It mm -hmm. seems like dance is becoming more gymnastic 
uh, on the stage. I mean, people are doing incredible things. Is this coming from all that aerobic training that mm. people have been doing? It's strange. <laughs> I know. It is, it is a bit of a trend. I mean, well, of course, uh, the original swing dancers were unbelievable. Mm. I mean, if you look at the old movies, they just were, were fearless. And, uh, but I do think there has been an introduction of different forms into the Broadway culture, you know, partly, um, I mean, river dance and, you know, get, bringing back all the Fosse. Oh, Savion Glover. Uh, Savion, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think what it is, diversity, it's, it's um, you know, more of a world culture. And I think what's fantastic about it is that we are experiencing and seeing things, uh, you know, virtuosities that we have mm -hmm. not experienced on, in the Broadway theater. So I think in a funny way, it's the Broadway theater that's diversifying and allowing all of this great new stuff in. Yeah, it seems quite different than the old-fashioned. Yes, I want to know, when did we begin talking about uh, director-choreographer and choreographer-director? That's only recently that that kind of billing has come about. And how did that start? And who has, not the upper hand, but who has the, the last direction between the director and choreographer? What is the difference? And how does it work? I think that's also a very good point, Isabel, because you not only have a director choreography, but you have someone like a Julie Taymor, who is a puppeteer and a director. Mm -hmm. And all those lines are beginning to... Uh, anyone want to... I believe the, I believe the first... I, th I think I know this, the, the answer to that. <laughs> I, I think the first uh, uh, choreographer who also directed was Agnes DeMille in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Allegro I think you're right. in 47. So that's, that, that began, and she was the one who really started to do that mm -hmm. uh, more and more. So in the 50s, obviously, it became a much more... Jerry Robbins, Bob Fosse, mm -hmm. Michael yeah. Bennett. Um, yeah. I would think, I, I, would, I would guess that the division is depending on, depends on the kind of piece it is. Uh, if it's a strong, big dance piece. I know that uh, in, the, in, the, in the musical that I did, The Dead, uh, I worked very closely with the, with the choreographer, a uh, wonderful choreographer, Sean Curran, um, but everything was about character. Everything, if you saw the piece, it's just a little story of a party, really. And, and it's, everything was about what, a, what one of these people could do. And this, they were taught steps, but they were taught steps as if they were part of that society. What steps would these characters have known? And then let free them. There was a certain part, in, there's a little moment at the, towards the end where five men come in and they've prepared something for this woman who's dying and they sort of sing and they make some movements and we tried many, many different things to do until we, what we did finally is just sent the five guys out into the hallway and said, you've got ten minutes, come back with what you do. And that's exactly what we put in because that was the real situation. Mm -hmm. So I, I assume it it's really just depends on what kind of piece. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I think there are, you know, works that require a, a hu you know, huge amount of musical numbers and, and also a huge amount of book scenes. And I think, you know, sometimes two people together can be a fantastic team. And other times it's a type of piece where it's, it just sort of flows from the same source um, more easily. And I think it just depends on the situation and the, the, um, uh, the willingness of people to share their, their talents um, and see this try to see the same picture. I mean, you can't project it on the wall out of your head, but, you know, the communication is just so delicate and so important and has to happen. I've done, you know, sometimes I love being the choreographer and other times I love being, you know, the person in the whole driver's seat. I think both have their own joys. Is really. this the first time that you've done the both? It's the first time in the Broadway arena. Mm -hmm. I've been fortunate enough in the regional theaters 
And before that, it was either directing or choreography? For myself, I, I came up more as a choreographer, a commissioned choreographer in the concert. Were you a dancer? Had you studied movement? Yes, I was a dancer. I was the, um, the only white member of the Avenelli Company when I was a kid, and I had a very strange, circuitous path. I, I, um, I danced on Broadway in several shows, including uh, I was a floating Cassie in Chorus Line for a while. I always knew that I had to be on the other side, though. I was, um, you know, if I came out the stage door and someone approached me, I would look behind to see who was behind me. I couldn't conceive of myself as that person, so I knew I was meant to be, you know, behind the scenes. But you do traditional ballet as well, American Ballet yes, Theatre, and so yeah. it's not just Broadway. I, I find it's, it's just a privilege to move back and forth because, you know, that's a pure empty slate, it all comes out of your own head, and then when you have a text or you know, trying to find the characters, and a lot of the work I do um, now in my commissions is character-driven, but it's just a different kind of challenge, and I think the variety is so, uh, we're so privileged to have the opportunity to have How did you train? Uh, first ballet, little church basement with my mom <laughs> playing the piano, and you know, then later on, better and better teachers, and uh, came to New York at 17, went to SAB, realized that, you know, um, Colleen Neary was this thin and I could see myself on either side of her. <laughs> I better go elsewhere. And I did. I, I got away that summer and, um, you know, found my way to Harkness House and Alvin Ailey saw me. And it was just really um, wonderful, unexpected. I didn't have, you know, any, any sort of training about what you're meant to do. I didn't go to university or anything. So I sort of blew my own self sideways for a while, you know. And, um, happily landed in, in a profession that I truly love. But I think that's one of the things that these seminars do is to show the various paths that people have taken to come to where they are at the particular yes. time that they're on a, uh, the seminar. And also the value of having done all these things so that you know the other person's role. Mm -hmm. if, if you have to direct or if you have to uh, stage manager or whatever you have to do to know what it is so to have that crossover of experience, mm -hmm. I think it's one of the most important things to bring to the theater, and it's so necessary. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered how directors, and some of you seem very polite and very you know, pleasant, how you deal with the enormous egos of some of the performers you have to <laughs> deal with, <laughs> and how do you keep them in line? I mean, they, they t you know, you who? describe, who? <laughs> you know, well, you've dealt, dealt with some of the Important. I suppose. Uh, yes, <laughs> you I seem so mild-mannered. I've dealt with some egos, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, egos come in different forms. I mean, in the main, um, I, I think you have to start from the premise that, that um, actors or performers of any nature are in, a, in an incredibly exposed situation. And um, therefore, uh, I mean, more exposed than, than sometimes it's... It's, uh, it's highly vulnerable. It's possible mm -hmm. to imagine. It's very, very vulnerable, and it's very, very frightening. And... Mm -hmm. Um, without, um, you know, crossing the line between directing and therapy, which is a line that, uh, that I hold to very rigorously, uh, I, uh, you know, I would say that, that um, unless you start from that premise that you are dealing with somebody um, who is of, sort of you know, um, uh, enormously gifted, uh, who lives their life, uh, their working life, um, at a, at a level of intensity and, and vulnerability that is uh, very difficult to match elsewhere, um, that then you, you have to filter 
what it is that you're receiving from them through that particular um, thought, through that mm -hmm. medium. There are, of course, occasions when, you know, in, in any group of people, um, uh, there are influences or, or, or pressures on that group or, or on the work that, that may seem to be inappropriate, um, uh, th that could potentially be destructive. Um, and I think it is very important to be able to establish with a group of people, you know, what the, uh, as far as you can, what the shared objective of this event is, what the, if you like, the, the grammar that we're all working with here is. Um, and then you must say, if, if somebody is departing from that or is in some way uh, distorting it without actually transforming it into something useful, you, you, you must call them on it. Um, and you should do it early. And you should do it early. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I, d I don't necessarily think it's, a, it's, it's, it's not something that necessarily is always has to be done in a kind of a poisonous... It's sort of anticipating it before it becomes a real problem. <laughs> yes, if you're lucky. Yeah. Well, let's name names. <laughs> Patrick Stewart is an enormous <laughs> performer. Yes. Well, how did he not just run away with a play? And did you have to hold him back? And well, I think that... Um, I think with... Patrick, it, it, it really started out as a partnership. I went out to California and met him. I'd, I didn't know him. And we talked about the play for six hours straight in his backyard. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he intended to do it when I went out there. Um, but by the time we finished the conversation, we, um, we realized that we had a connection about the material and that we were both very excited by the prospect of working together. And it's on that basis that we continued to... Uh, you know, that we continue to work on, on this play. And I think that uh, if, um, if that hadn't been the case, we, we, we just wouldn't have gotten anywhere. I, I mean, Patrick is an incredible uh, actor in the sense that he has uh, uh, wonderful charisma, um, but, he's ex but he's also extremely hardworking, and he's very serious. And if, um, if the challenges are there, and you're, and you're prepared to meet the challenges with him, I, there's not a problem. He's, he's absolutely game for anything, and he's fearless. How much were you informed by his other work, in other words, when you were out there? Well, actually, the other work is more of a problem. because well, That's what I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, because because uh, people tend to think of him as Captain Picard, and, and uh, exactly. his image is, is based on that. And I think um, we... What I needed to know from him is whether he would be willing to get down and dirty in, in, this, in this part, because it's a, it's a part that um, it really asks that, that you are not, to, that you're not liked. I mean, you, you have to be prepared not to be liked in, on occasion. And uh, it's, a, it's a bigamist, and it goes against a lot of people's uh, morality. And uh, I was really struck by the fact that he was brave enough to take that on, and he was not interested in maintaining that image of, of the Star Trek. Did guy. you, uh, were you the one that gave him the toupee? We to talked, break that image? We talked about that. I mean, seriously, yeah, that, you know. Yeah, we, we talked about that, and I think, I can't remember if it was he or I that brought it up first, but uh, might have even been the costume designer. <laughs> but um, but we, did want, um, we did want to uh, present an image that was different from what people expected. Yeah. What gave you the background or the, or the ability to deal with these two strong legendary figures, both in the acting and in the playwriting. You have Arthur Miller and Patrick Stewart. Yeah. And you're, you're a very young person. 
Were you not Not that young. <laughs> 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 Fairly young, I would say. Not, not intimidated uh, by this? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I still pinch myself that I, you know, that my Broadway debut is with Arthur Miller and, and, and taking a new play of Arthur Miller's to Broadway. Um, but, um, you know, I think that it, it really comes down to everybody wants to be respected in this business and everyone wants to feel as though what they contribute is important. And when, when there is mutual respect within a group of people, in the way that I think uh, there is between Arthur and, and Patrick and myself, I think a lot can be accomplished. A lot of wonderful things begin to happen. Uh, you were talking about you know, actors and, and, and uh, vulnerability. And if you've ever been on the stage, you know that there's nothing more terrifying than not, being, not knowing what you're specifically doing. It feels, like you're, it feels like you're a car on ice and you're just skating off and you're going to crash. So I think that, what, that the, the, the best thing that you can do as a director is to, is to bring a very specific and detailed uh, approach to the work and, and to make sure that the moment-to-moment -moment actions of the play are clear to the performer and that you are articulating what the author intended. Um, and if, if that begins to happen, people start to relax and trust. And, uh, were, you, were you an actor? in an amateur capacity. <laughs> How about you, Dan? Yeah, no, I was very briefly a very, very, very bad actor. At the, actually, my greatest contribution to the British theatre was giving up acting. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, um, I'm, from selfish reasons, very grateful that I did that. Yeah, because, me too. Um, I actually think you probably, as a director, learn more from being a bad actor than you do from being a good actor, because if you're a very good actor, <laughs> you don't necessarily know how it is that you do things, but if you're a very bad actor, um, first of all, in, in the main, you get to work with um, you know, equally bad directors, um, right. and, and which, which sort of um, you know, tends to increase the chances of that experience that you're talking about being on stage and not knowing what you are doing. I mean, if I could tell you, that something that haunts me, but I keep at the back of my mind, and I don't usually actually tell companies that I work with this, but here I am actually, you know, <laughs> mentioning it on TV, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, I, one of my early acting jobs was to play all the messenger parts in King Lear, <laughs> uh, which incidentally taught me that if I ever directed King Lear, and we had a very short rehearsal period, I would direct the messenger, because King Lear can look after himself. So <laughs> he's got several goes, you know, to get work. Messenger, being a messenger is, you know, pinpoint precise. You can't. And um, I, um, there is one message in, in, that you have to deliver in King Lear, which is mysterious. And I can only think that Shakespeare may have intended it to do to an actor at the time in his company what it did to me, um, which was that you come onto the stage and you say to Cordelia, Madame, uh, the Duke of Cornwall's forces approach with all. And she says, we know of this before. <laughs> now, the, the problem I found, which haunted me for the full six weeks of this run, was how to then leave the stage. <laughs> um, and it, it, it was... You know, it was a production, it was a Shakespeare production uh, where messengers tended to come on and kneel. I mean, uh, it's not something that the Royal Shakespeare Company does uh, anymore, and certainly since I've directed Shakespeare with the RSC, we didn't, and partly for this reason, we had no kneeling of messengers. <laughs> 
Because to get up from the kneeling position after you have run allegedly 25 miles to deliver a message which Cordelia has already heard, um, the thing I found uh, just instinctively happening to me was um, a kind of shrug. <laughs> we know of this before. Well, <laughs> and I spent six weeks trying to suppress a shrug. And this exit became enormous to me. Um, I mean, you know, looking back on it, it's hilarious, but there is, there's also, you know, a basic truth about an event like that, which is mm -hmm. that, you know, as, as David is saying, I, the, the, the uh, absolute responsibility to uh, reach a point with your company uh, whereby every actor uh, on that stage is, is connected into the narrative, has a sense of purpose, knows why they've come on and how on earth they get off, <laughs> um, is really you know, the bare bones of this job before one even gets into areas of, of mystery. Right. Or Staging and stylized. Yes, that yeah. fundamentally, that's uh, you know you must do that, and I and I just recall so vividly what that was like, mm -hmm. and uh, I shall never forget it, and I'm glad I haven't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you an actor, Richard? No, no, thank God. <laughs> thank God. How did you begin? What is your background? Um, well, I'm a playwright. I, yes. I started writing plays when I was 15, and uh, wrote between the age of 15 and 25, maybe you know maybe 20 plays most of which I did myself in various ways, college and whatnot. And started 25 years ago this year, uh, uh, had my first professional production in Los Angeles. And all the plays up to then I had directed, but at that point I stopped directing completely. And then I, about four years ago, three years ago, Adrian Noble, at the head of the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, they had commissioned a children's play for me. And, and from a friend named Colin Chambers. And we wrote this play called Kenneth's First Play, and someone else was going to direct it. And that person pulled out a month before. Adrian said, will you do it? And I said, mm. And I made him swear that he would come to a run-through in the rehearsal room. And in all my years working at the RSC, no artistic director had ever come to a run-through in the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. And he did. And I found that I enjoyed it again. And um, he came to see it, and, and he, bless him, just said at the end of it, he stood up, looked at me, and said, see, I told you it was easy, oh. and he left. <laughs> and that sort of lit a fire. But mostly what I, for me, the training has been very simple. I spent 20-some years sitting next to, close to, behind, around, some of the greatest directors of the English-speaking world, just one after another. People from Trevor Nunn to Livio Chule to David Jones or Roger Michelle or John Madden. I mean, an extraordinary group, you know, a number of people, Peter Gill, an amazing range of, of directors. And I learned from each um, and was in awe of each and enjoyed each. And uh, it's come a time in my own writing that I've learned that I've, I've now put what I want to see on the stage and how it works are so entwined. Mm -hmm. that I feel that maybe I'm the best person to, or the easiest person to, to convey that, relay that, and organize it. Mm -hmm. So it's a big, big change for me in my life in the last few years uh, to come to that conclusion. Um, and changed, changed everything, changed your personal life, because I, I love the life of a writer. There's nothing, nothing greater than, you know, I have a 
nice desk and a stream, <laughs> and, I, and I pick up my kids from school, and now suddenly I'm, you know, suddenly I'm eating in restaurants and watching late night TV. So, yeah. so um, well, you know, and you've also done something else, which I'd like to get in a little bit. Um, you've also collaborated with other writers, and um, particularly on Misha's party, you work with Alexander Gelman, who speaks no English. Uh, and I don't think your Russian is fluent. No, I, I, uh, I wanted, how, how did you do that? Well, I, I, <coughs> Sasha, Alexander Gelman is one of the truly great playwrights of, of then the Soviet Union when I started to work with him in, in Russia. And we were, uh, through a long process, we were uh, commissioned to, to write a play together from scratch by both Royal Shakespeare Company and the Moscow Art Theatre. And it would be done in both places and it ended up being done. And so we, we started, I met in Moscow, and then we worked with the, through an interpreter. And, we, and our, our biggest chunk of time was working was, was, was the, the McDowell Colony, bless it, was, was just incredible. They, they, they brought us to the McDowell Colony, gave us a cabin in the woods, rooms to stay in, you know, fed us, left a little basket on our, on our, uh, on our uh, front porch for lunch. And, and we had this amazing interpreter, a translator. And at, at about six o'clock, we we break out the vodka and start to work the evenings. And I remember one time we were, I, you know, I, I speak no Russian, none. I don't know the alphabet, I don't know anything. So we're talking through this translator, and one of the characters' name is Mary, and I, I was saying this, and Sasha was saying in Russian, and the translator's back and forth, and finally the translator says to me, well, what if Mary does so-and-so? And I thought, it's not a very good idea, but it's not a terrible idea. I said, okay, Mary can do so-and-so. And, you know, and the translator comes back to speak and comes back and says, Sasha says he doesn't like that. Says, why should Mary do so-and-so? I said, I thought it was his idea. And the translator says, no, no, that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I don't know who wrote the play. Yeah. I don't know how we found That's very funny. And, uh, and so we have this, so this play, this play happened in this, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was a slightly more, uh, organized process. What happens? We 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 agreed on the story and the characters on a very tight scenario. That's what we evolved. We didn't try to write the dialogue together. Mm -hmm. Then I took that away, and then I wrote the scenes. I wrote the dialogue, which I then read to him through an interpreter back yeah. in Moscow. And then then he gave me his notes, and then we agreed at that time to part. Meaning meaning he then took my play, and then he adapted it and changed even the location, made some significant changes in it. So there's sort of two different plays, slightly different plays or whatever, one in Russian and, and one in English. And it was done at the Royal Shakespeare Company where it ran for its typical two months in, in rep, and it's at the Moscow Art Theatre where it's been running six years. Oh, oh. Right. So. Great. Oh, goodness. Very exciting. Mm. Becky, what is your next play? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, my, my latest production was a baby, so oh, okay. um, I had a baby four weeks ago, so I haven't been thinking of much else. Oh, that's a production. That's, very <laughs> that's a production. I, I have an idea, uh, a germ of an idea for a play, but I haven't even gone to, um, there's sort of a step I'd like to take of immersing myself in the world, and I haven't even done that, but I figure I have to start sleeping five-hour stretches. <laughs> Before I can do any of it. Did you study? Did you go to a school to learn playwriting or read any books? Is there some advice you could give all the people who might like to do what you did? As I say, only just again by soaking up as an actor. Um, you know, I was in a theater company in Boston. I struggled for a while here. I went to the American Repertory Theater as an acting student. So I've 
you know, by observation, basically. So there's no text that one could purchase, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> defer to, <laughs> to Richard. I don't know. The manual on What's the <laughs> write a lot. Write a lot. It, write a lot and see a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that would be the thing. I, I've done a lot of... Um, uh, I made a very conscious decision when I was in my late 20s to, to try to, to involve myself both in classical theater and also to, to adapt, translate classical mm -hmm. plays, and I've done a lot of that. May, one of it's also, one, it's lucrative, and two, it's, it also teaches you a lot of, mm -hmm. of the form of theater. Uh, it's very, very significant um, to do. I think one of, the, one of the dangers that exists now from the time when I was a young playwright is this, there's been, an, people do think that there are books. When I grew up, I think that people didn't think there were books. So you, what you have is a lot of advice now, a lot more advice than, my advice was, I will do it, I will don't do it. And that was what I got. This is like, let's do a reading, and then let's all talk about it. And let's do another reading, and let's all talk about it. Let's do maybe a workshop. We're not really investing in the audience. We don't really know if they're responding in a real way or in a workshop. And then let's talk about it. And I think that, that, by and large, more plays are lost that way than made that way. But I, that's, that's my... Uh, I agree. I, I think that I've had the. Um, uh, I was working, directing something at the director's circle, and I was part of that, um, watching that process for a while, and there was some wonderful work. And I, I just, it, it just seems that what happens when it passes through so many hands and so much processes is that um, whatever was the passion that that was that original piece can, you know, it just, you know go so, so circuitously through the hands of so many people and oftentimes in, in those various workshops it changes directors and mm -hmm. you know a lot of well what I said to, to the author I was working with I would love to see your original script because what what made you write this mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not getting where the passion is and um, I went back to a much earlier draft and worked from there but I think it's it's just it's partly the economics of someone who isn't established and Luckily, you know, you were able mm -hmm. to get your plays produced before all of this new kind of economy in the theater. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's difficult. I know for the young choreographers, for the young writers, I think it's a much, much harder world. And when, when people ask me, oh, how did you do such and such, I say, it's a different world. I, I can't give you advice based on this because I'm now, at this age, you know, having already uh, had, had some sort of a profile. <coughs> And it's difficult to, to um, you know, start now. I think that's well, I, it, say, <coughs> I, I was just going to say, for me, it's probably a different level. But the workshop process for me was valuable. I mean, I know it can sort of fold in on itself, but it wasn't always valuable. But I felt, again, over time, if I got the same message from people that I trusted, it helped me. I just think it's a problem when it becomes um, playwriting by committee. Mm. Yes. Uh, <coughs> that's, where, that's where the danger is. But um, there's such a, I think there's such a responsibility as a director in, in um, uh, helping a play to, um, uh, to arrive <laughs> because I think there's, there's often uh, a tendency to want to make something like what, what you already know rather than <laughs> listening to the, the specifics of that, of that material or that voice. And um, I think that that's the most important thing that you can do as a director is encourage both yourself and the actors to listen to, to the writer and to hear the, the rhythms and the nuances and, and the subject and, and even the structure of the piece because 
that's when, that's when you actually get something very unique. You discover something unique, and you don't turn it into what everybody already knows. Well, now, you um, moved the play from the public theater to Broadway. What happened to it textually from the public to, of, of Ride Down Mount Morgan to Broadway? A lot, not a lot? Oh, well, I think that I, I think the majority of, of that kind of movement was done at the public. I think the, um, the physical vocabulary for the play was arrived at there. So, um, the, uh, there were rewrites that happened as, as a result of going to Broadway, but, but I think most of it was, was directorial interpretation. Uh, Arthur did write a, a, a speech for the end of the play, which Patrick actually took on and read in one of the previews. Um, and we began to feel that that was right. And then once that was established, we cut the, uh, we, we removed the, the ending of the play that we had created down at the public, because now we felt like the play should end in a different spot. So um, I think the thing that, that struck me what, in terms of uh, this idea of listening to a play is that Arthur had written a play that was, a, was very abstract and nonlinear, and the character would go into fantasy, would go into memory, anything to, to escape his present situation of being discovered as a bigamist with two wives on either side of him in a hospital room. So what I, what I began to discover is that there are conventions to plays, and, and we would set up a convention of, uh, there, would be a, there, the, there would be a convention set up in the writing, but then I began to discover that when the character got into trouble, he would break the convention of the play in order to escape his situation. And it began to be a lot of fun to think about, okay, well, we can do this, and now we, have, now we can just bag that. He no longer has to sit in a, he no longer has to be in a hospital bed. Now he can get up and run around. Then, you know, and it just went on like that. And, and as, as it, it, it felt like a liberation to me, and it felt like a discovery. And uh, I felt like I began to understand what he had always had in mind. And so uh, I think that there's, uh, I think with, with that in place, then, then whatever rewrites came into the, the process were appropriate to that, that initial vision that Arthur had always had, but that we had to wait around for us to discover. Mm -hmm. To follow up on George's question, did you have mm -hmm. to enlarge the play? Did you have to open it up more when you came to Broadway? Also, why, why did you want to come to Broadway for the play? Well, <clears throat> the main thing I think about coming to Broadway is that I feel like, it, I feel like Arthur Miller and Broadway are synonymous. Mm -hmm. I feel like the play has finally found its audience and that it is an audience that loves and respects this writer. And there's a, there, there's, it's so wonderful to be in the theater and to see that that happening. It, it, it's, uh, it's really extraordinary. And as far as moving the play, we didn't have to do a tremendous amount of changes to the physical production because the space was pretty close to what it was down at the public. But it has more height in the, in the Ambassador Theater, which gives it a little bit more air and breadth. And we also wanted to just sharpen things up, make, make sure that, the, that our ideas that we initially created for the public were just taken to the next level. And uh, I think we were able to do that. Um, things are quieter, they move quickly, um, edges are sharper. Um, we do the performances were, have to be larger 
we try that. not to do that. Mm -hmm. We try. To, I think that I think it's kind of it can be a kind of a disease for a big theater to mm -hmm. where everything gets so mm -hmm. big you can't. There's no nuance left, and so we we try not to do that. Mm -hmm. the, the ambassador is actually a nice space because it allows a kind a perfect, of intimacy for it. But I think what we discovered as we went uptown is that it, we found more humor in it. You know, I think Beckett said, "There's nothing funnier than unhappiness," and <laughs> we were able to we were able to deepen the play and consequently find more uh, more comedy in it. When you say do it louder, I was thinking of the the, the mics that are now used in mm -hmm. almost all Broadway plays. Mm -hmm. How do you writers and directors feel about that? It's a terribly difficult question. This because the you know, I come from a, um, a theatre culture where the idea of voice reinforcement is met with horror um, because there is a kind of you know, almost sort of Puritan ethic about the fact that it is up to the actor to project and to mm -hmm. be clear. Um, I think, <coughs> though, you, you have to take into account um, levels of expectation. Uh, when you're, say, moving a play from one culture and into another, you must take into account there's no point hanging on to some principle for its own sake if ultimately it's not delivering the experience of the play to an audience. I have to say that, that I think this is, I mean, sometimes people say that this is due to the fact that, that the modern actor is less equipped to, to project than, than they were 20 years ago. I think this is only marginally true it's not that, it's just actually our expectation of volume <laughs> is actually different. Mm -hmm. We are accustomed to that uh, compressed, intensified sound that comes out of the television, mm -hmm. uh, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the Walkman, right. the CD. Yeah. You don't have to reach for it right. anymore, yeah, that's you don't right. have to work, it just comes at it you. It comes at you so yeah. that it's an essentially <sighs> passive process where I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago it probably was a much more active yeah. process in audiences. But I, I also think, you know, we're living in noisier cities. I mean, the fact is that, that <laughs> most of the, you know, the, most of the theatres in London were, of course, built at the time when the noisiest thing that would go past would be, you know, a horse and a carriage, which I mean, could be noisy. Well, now, you know, we have fire trucks, we have ambulances, we have, you know, our police who, who got those nice sirens from over here and installed <laughs> them over there. Um, and there is a sort of, you know, there's, there's an... In other words, silence has more or less been privatised now. It's right. not widely available um, and, uh, and you, you, you have to find a way of overcoming that. that I think that when David said about trying to, to find a way in which one can maintain nuance and a, and a level of reality in the acting when you go into a bigger house is so important because it's very easy to become anxious and say, no, we're suddenly in a big house. Uh, nothing is true anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, it's absolutely true, but you have to negotiate somewhere. You have to negotiate. Actors are going to have to speak up. They're going to have to uh, fill spaces that they didn't have to fill before. Um, and to be honest, I think sometimes uh, that can also reveal other things about the play. Right. You know? mm -hmm. And right. that's very exciting too. It's not the idea that, that whispered allegedly psychological naturalism somehow is true and anything louder is not true is fundamentally not, doesn't seem to me to be the case in the theatre. In the theatre you have all sorts of levels at which the truth is spoken. Give me mm -hmm. an example of negotiate. How, yeah. what you're saying. Mm. Okay. Um, in, sometimes it's a question of rhythm. Um, 
for instance, I mean, we, you know, in my case, we, Tom Soppard's play, The Real Thing, actually started life in this uh, production in a small space, very small space in London, the Donmar Warehouse. Um, now, in the Donmar, it is possible to, um, uh, to move faster. It's a very small space, a very intimate space. In other words, uh, an actor can speak at the speed of thought, um, and nothing is lost. As you get onto the bigger space, if you, if you speak at that speed, it is literally not, it, it doesn't arrive with right. an audience. Mm-hmm. They don't get it. It gets garbled. Yes. Mm. So, in fact, what we had to do was, was slow some things down. Um, and, you know, the, the play takes a little bit longer. I, I remember um, Adrian Noble, actually, the RSC, telling me when I was working there that there was a, that you could, uh, there was a line rate in Shakespeare in the smaller space, the Swan Theatre, which is entirely different from the line rate in the big house, uh, that I think it was something like um, 14 lines per minute in the Swan, <laughs> and 11 to 12 in the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, the big the big theatre, and this was just timed by Terry Hands over a period, over a whole season. It's in those areas where you, you almost have to get used to what feels artificial to begin with, but don't lose faith. Right. Know that when you come but, through... But some of it is also energy, taking the energy through to the line, articulating, mm-hmm. um, you know, just basic, uh, sort of basic things of, of speaking, yeah. you know, on, for the stage. And it gets, that buys you a lot. You can... But we, we talk about it as, as um, there's a certain point in the rehearsal process, it's usually in one of the previews um, early on, where the audience isn't quite getting what they need from the stage. It almost always happens because you, you come out of the rehearsal room, which is intimate, and now you have to be in the space. And that adjustment is very, um, is very delicate. And, it, and, uh, and so we talk about sharing the play with the audience, and, and uh, I think it's a good way of discussing it. Could I ask you to hold that thought <laughs> and, and share it with us when we come back? Sure. Because you're going to stop for just a minute here, and everybody's going to stretch and rest and do whatever they have to do very quickly, and come right back, and we'll continue with the American Theatre Wing Seminar. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75. Welcome back to the American Theatre Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before we return to our gifted panelists, I would like to remind you that The Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Award. We are, the award is presented for excellence in the theatre, as many of you know. The Wing is an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theater and the community. And since one of our goals is developing new audiences for the theater, we have created meaningful programs for students like Introduction to Broadway, which began eight years ago and has enabled more than 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the very first time. And through our theater and school program, professionals like these and our seminar panelists that you see today go directly into classrooms 
to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have a hospital program, which dates back to World War II, when we operated our legendary stage door canteens. Today's version of the program brings talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in hospitals, senior day and nursing facilities, aid centers, and child care facilities in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who are unable to get out to enjoy the theater themselves. We are proud of the work we do and delighted with the wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. We are grateful to our members and everyone who makes possible all the American <coughs> Theatre Wing does. And so having said that, let's get back to our seminar on the playwright, director, choreographer. I'd like to start part two with a question myself, and I'd like to start it with David, if you may. David Laveau, that David. <laughs> Do you rely on workshops in, in the English theater as much as we tend to here in New York? Um, probably not to quite that extent, no. Um, although we have a, you know, a fairly thriving workshop culture, and there are, um, <clears throat> you know, attached, for instance, to, to our Royal National Theater is a studio uh, which, is, which is dedicated to, to the development of, of work and um, <clears throat> in, in, in a workshop situation. Um, I think that what, what Richard had to say about how sometimes um, the idea of, of, of the endless workshops um, diffusing the original energy of a, of, of a play or a piece of work is, is a very genuine danger. Uh, and I think it comes from um, a, a sort of mi misplaced notion of refinement, um, a word that, that I particularly um, hate, uh, which you don't hear so much in the theatre, you hear it more, I think, in, um, uh, in the movies, is the word polish. <coughs> I, I hate this word because, I, it, 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 because what it conjures up is the notion that somehow you can sort of burnish off the sort of awkward corners and edges of this thing until it actually becomes acceptable in a sort of rather homogenized fashion. Um, in reality, um, uh, we're all of us about making um, a piece of live theater. And to make, that there is only one test that, that uh, I ever think of applying to that, which is simply, is it living or is it not living? Um, sometimes something that is very gawky um, apparently badly structured, uh, has got all sorts of built-in contradictions and moments when the machinery creaks, um, is, it can make the most fantastic theatre, and, and that if you attempt to uh, soften or refine or, or, or to polish, very often what, what is uh, vital and energetic uh, about the piece just flows out of it, uh, and it becomes a rather sort of bland exercise. And... Um, I just think on, on that score from a directing point of view, because uh, when I began directing, I was so desperate for you know, every production to be terribly good that you know, inevitably one tried to sort of um, <coughs> smooth over any of the difficult moments, either by making it simply go faster or introducing some startling lighting effect or, uh, if the worst came to the worst, a piece of music that people could leave the theatre... Uh, people could leave the theatre humming, you know. Um, <coughs> and it took me some years, really, to discover suddenly that, no, you know, when you meet uh, a moment in a play where this seems to contradict this 
and it's a very awkward corner that we've all got to get round. But rather than trying to, as it were, shave off the edges until they became the same thing, it was actually much more energetic and exciting to extend the space so that the contradiction became larger. And as it becomes larger, very often you find in that place, in that awkward turn in the play, uh, that energy literally floods in uh, to the scene. And you may find something that is coming from some very deep place in the play mm -hmm. that uh, starts to reveal that play. As David said, because you used the word revelation. That is a very proper use for a workshop, is to reveal a play. I think a dreadful use for a workshop is to refine it so that mm -hmm. uh, you can get it past the critic of the New York Times. It's a disastrous <laughs> idea. It will never work. I think the other thing, I, just to, to expand on that idea, is that sometimes you, you can only go but so far without some production Absolutely. around you because um, that, that is a layer of a play that is is vital. I mean, in our real lives, we have stuff around us, and there is a, a design, and there's a choice made, and, and that part of a collaboration mm. um, takes something further. You know, you can't just say, imagine, if you will, a living room. You know, eventually, you have to take the chance of, of saying, I, I have a vision for it, or my collaborators have a vision for it, and we must be there in order for this to, to reach its fullest potential. And I think for, for myself, workshop was incredible. We were speaking about it, you know, that because there was a description, because we were inventing vignettes, we needed a lot of time. And we never ever showed the work in a linear fashion. Um, it was very, I think, disturbing to my producers at times because we had to show, okay, here's something that's developing and here's something, and eventually those two islands will connect. That is not a comforting thing to hear, you know, for, for a producer. But um, God love them. They, they hung in there. And, and so that was very, uh, very helpful. But I don't think that we could have continued much further than, you know, having to be shoved onto the stage because literally we had the opportunity. And then it took a huge leap. And uh, that was very important. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, there's a question of, of what a workshop is for. I've, I've worked at the, at the studio at the Royal National Theatre doing a, a workshop. It was very, very useful. But no one from the theatre ever saw what we did. It was only for us. And that was a very useful thing, only for us, to get people together to try to sort something out. It's a problem in a workshop or a reading or anything like that. It, it has an element of judgment over it. Right. That you are doing this workshop to see if something works and therefore see if you can go the next step. That's a big problem. And it's a very confusing one for a playwright. Mm -hmm. uh, what will happen is because people can't separate what they see in a reading or a workshop from the work itself. Right. So if you have Meryl Streep who plays the maid in your reading, and she'll never play it in the, in the production. She does the reading. After the, end of the, after the end of the reading, people say, oh, the, the, the maid was fantastic. <laughs> and, then, and then you have another reading in two months, and you don't have Meryl Streep, and people say, what'd you do to the maid? How did you work that up? I remember it so much more vividly. Uh, and you can get incredibly confused. You can move this way and that way. As, as a playwright, I've had many di different productions of the same play. And so you can see, you can see how different directors have taken things, sometimes when you've worked with them, and sometimes when you've just gone to an opening night. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Elements of a play that are a, a real big problem, where a director like almost has his hands around your throat as a playwright saying, cut it, change it, whatever. In another production, no problem at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, it's a, and, and to learn that, 
learn what is your center and what your place is, as opposed to going left and right and being bounced around. It's the hardest. Well, and readings become commercials in a way, yeah. and so there's a pressure to present them in a way that will get producers interested in actually going to the next step. And uh, that isn't a very useful investigation, if that's what you're doing. Although it can be, you can add a certain level of excitement to the moment, can't it? Which yeah. is sort of, I mean, I... I that's what, I won't rehearse re readings because of that. You know, it has to be raw, because I don't want people to misunderstand. Mm. Explain that. Just go in there the day of and tell people what you want and talk about the character a little bit and let it fly, you know? Because and you don't have formalized readings? Well, it's formalized. I mean, it would be in front of an audience. But what I'm saying is rehearsal is, is deadly with a reading mm -hmm. because you, you, take the, you, you, uh, you take those first impulses and then you talk about them and deal with them and take them to the, to the next step and you're not ready to do that. And so sometimes mm -hmm. it can kill a play. Well, there's a point where the rehearsal or a reading uh, demands that you either do it for eight hours of rehearsal, just so you know where it is. Right. And once you're beyond that, then you're into three to four weeks. Right. You're into because you can't explore deep enough, and you're just skating on the end. Then it gets confusing yeah. and crazy. I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the playwright director who has the uh, last word, who takes, makes a decision when you're one. You know, I like to I like to make decisions with a playwright. I don't I don't feel like it's ever useful to um, to work at cross purposes. But I think it. I mean, I think that there's a kind of an adage of the theater, which is that the playwright conceives the play. Um, Arthur said he hears the play as he writes it, and then he's lucky if he ever hears it again. <laughs> That's great. Um, but then at a certain point, the, the playwright gives that play over to the people that are going to interpret it. And I think at that point, it becomes the director's. And, and then there's another, there's another point at which you, you, the director, deliver it and sort of and give birth to it, and it becomes the relationship of the actor and the audience. And, and so I think that there's, the, 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 there are, oh, the sort of, there are stages of, of, of responsibility. But I don't think you ever want to, you don't, it's not that delineated. You always want to refer back. You always want the author's opinion in, in, any, in, 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 in the process. You want the actor's opinion early on as well. You know? mm -hmm. I, I, I always, on the, if I'm directing my own play, I, on the first day I tell the actors that I'm going to do what I think every director I've ever worked with has secretly wanted to do, and that's throw the playwright out of the room. <laughs> and I start that, and then, and then it becomes very useful because during rehearsal, if there's a certain time where someone wants to change something, I'll say, uh, mm -hmm. I'll just have to go consult with the writer. <laughs> I'll maybe walk a few steps and say, no. What happens when you're the playwright and the director? How do you get yourself out of the room? Well, I just, that's, that's, I, I, I just throw myself out. I mean, I, that's, um, they're confused by that point as well. See, I love having the author in the room uh, because um, if, if, when the author talks and sometimes reads the play, I mean, not, not too often anymore, but... Um, but just the things, the stories that they tell, the way they speak, those, those are all really strong indications of how the play should be. Yeah, do you find that yeah. having a playwright read the play out loud, and sometimes I have, is very instructive, both as a director and to the other actors, as they do with the actors? Yeah, I, 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 I do. I think to a certain point. I mean, yeah. otherwise it becomes intimidating to the yeah. performer. But, um, 
but the other thing is just the stories that they tell. What, what interests them? Where their politics lie? Um, and, um, and like I said, the rhythms of their own speech, which I think actors pick up on. They absorb that. And, and uh, you can get pretty close to the material that way mm -hmm. very quickly. I'm going to interrupt this once more as we have questions from our audience. So we can come forward and with the first question, please. Hi, my name is Margot Evan Goldman. I'm an actor. And this question is directed to David Laveau and to can Richard Nelson. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. The question is can you describe the differences between American and British audiences? <laughs> Richard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the biggest difference, I think the most important thing is the difference between British and American theaters. And people will say, oh, there's a certain kind of training, oh, there's a certain kind of whatever. I would say that the difference is simply product. That in a theater like the Royal Shakespeare Company, they're going to do something like 30 productions a year. And the Royal at the Royal National, another. 30 productions a year. That's 60 productions of classical work in some way. There, it's just simply, that, that's, that's so much. And I think that breeds an audience, a knowledgeable audience, of, of a kind of theater-going audience who, who, who has seen X, Y, and Z. And I think that's, a, that's basically different. There is more product. There is more to see. Um, there is more classical work being done. I think it's, um you know, uh, we were just talking about this back there before <coughs> we came out here. Um, <laughs> the, um, the, the, there is clearly, an I think there's an increasing divide between what particularly what you might call old school, old school producers uh, here believe, uh, for instance, the New York audience will take or not take to. Um, that in fact... Um, there is an audience here which I think is simply sensational in the sense that it is, um, it is open, uh, flexible, uh, has a way of coming to the theatre uh, and from the word go is prepared to accept whatever comes off that stage. You have maybe about two minutes before they can start to become disappointed or whatever, but from the word go. Um, that, you know, last year we brought a production of Sophocles Electra into, into New York with Zoe Wanamaker, and um, I, I, I didn't really think about this play coming into New York at all. In fact, I was particularly keen. It, it started life in London, and I was very keen that it didn't come to New York as some sort of horribly shiny British import of a classic. I mean, who, who needs it? You know, it sort of had the kiss of death to it. So what we did was we went to Princeton, the Mercator Theatre there, um, because Zoe and I wanted to work on the play again, and we, we mm -hmm. recast it, and we had a, you know, a fantastic American company, and then there was the sort of necessary heat to move it, you know, roughly into, into New York, but what was a very interesting thing was the amount of advice I got before this actually happened from producers here, one of whom, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> said to me, David, you have to understand that the New York audience don't like Greek choruses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 Uh, where, where is the evidence you know, for that? Of course they do if it works. Of course, of course they do. So I think you know. But what Richard says is true. You know, in London it is a very highly literate audience. I don't think that I don't think the audience here is illiterate. But we, we uh, is an audience which which actually tends to go to plays um, sort of rather than the way they you know they have meals. 
Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, they can have a great time. It's really enjoyable and say, not bad, you know, and then leave. There's no, you know, not bad. That's great. That's fine. Okay, we'll do it tomorrow, you know. <laughs> so sometimes you sort of feel yourself, if you, if you die in the theatre in England, it's, it's, it's death by indifference. Uh, and, and here it's death by fire. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's up to you. To, and I think the latter is more energetic. If, you know. <laughs> I think it does, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think there's any science for that. Um, I, I think it does. I think that some things that, for instance, in, a, in an English play like The Real Thing, written by, well, really actually by a Czech masquerading <laughs> as an Englishman, uh, Tom Stoppard, um, uh, you know, there are some things that, that um, the English just take for granted, uh, which perhaps seem more sort of surprised. People can't sometimes quite like believe. Like the cricket bat. Right. Like cricket, yes. Yeah. And sometimes here you can feel an audience not quite being able to believe anybody would say <laughs> what they have just said. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And there's, a, there's an excitement about that. Come to think of it, that would probably be so about off-Broadway audiences and Broadway audiences as well. Is that so? Becky? Is there a difference? Or California and Chicago and New York? I don't know. I mean, one of my experiences with just taking our play from place to place is we went upstate to um, the Adirondacks and people told us, well, they, it's a very New York play and people won't get it in the Adirondacks. And, um, or in Rhinebeck. <laughs> and it was a different type of audience than we were used to, but I was sort of prepared for an icy silence. And the thing that was nice for me was seeing how just different audiences respond differently, that they did respond to it, but they responded in, to different things in the play. and. Um, it seemed to me that a little obnoxious that they weren't giving them credit, as though New York audiences were somehow smarter and more gifted and more smug. Well, maybe they got different references, but it was an equally good audience. In fact, it was a great audience. Um, I, between Broadway and Off-Broadway, I don't know. But I will say between our non-commercial run and our commercial run, there's a different expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Partly they're just paying more, so you feel sometimes they're crankier if it's not what they thought it was going to be. And, um, what do you attribute that to? Money. Uh, <laughs> 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 and also what you said about dining out, that, you know, it's sort of a show-me attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, here I am. Whereas if you sort of seek something out in the non-commercial circuit, it's partly just because you love going to the theater right. and you want to be surprised, mm -hmm. not necessarily entertain or have something proven to you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Helping, what we're doing is helping people to go that love the theater. Yeah. And that, that's the most important thing. Mm -hmm. We have more questions here. Would you please come up? <coughs> this is to the panel. I'd like to know how often you attend the, the performance after it opens. Mm. You understand that? David, 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 David. Start at this side. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. When I ran my theater downtown, Classic Stage Company, I would go periodically through the run of the show. In fact, I felt like a lot of, the, of, of really important work got done in front of an audience past the preview period. And I found it was a way of really honing and, and sharpening the play. Um, I think it's important to give over the, the play to the actors and to trust them to do, it, to do it the way it's been rehearsed and to allow them to deepen it and change it in, 
in small ways. But I do think every now and then it's important to stop back and, and I would say maybe once a week or so uh, at, at most just to see that everything is still on track and that the stakes are high and that um, everything is as it should be. I, I um, found that I go back. Um, I have been working out of town quite a lot since my show opened, but I go back because um, the show is so complex. And um, at Jerry Zach's suggestion, actually, I put a, a new number in, a quiet, quiet number in the first act, and you know, just to see how that flows and, and how it feels and how it's affected what's around it. Um, I agree, though, that you can't go back and, and be a massive presence walking into the theater. You have to realize that there's been morphing and change and uh, dynamics have moved on and that's a wonderful thing but I think it is it's important to the actors also to know that you care about the production and you come back and you still you know it matters that things go well for them mm -hmm. yeah I go about every two weeks don't you have to read oh. one more question <laughs> <laughs> thanks my name is Catherine Lilly, and I'm an actress, a dancer, and a little gymnastics <laughs> sometimes. But um, I'd like to address Lynn Taylor Corbett. Um, tell me about your transition from going from a dancer to a choreographer, and how difficult is this to achieve? Well, I, for myself, I, was, I loved my dancing career very much. I always was looking around and sort of noticing other people and thinking, well, if only he had done that, or, you know, as I've said before, I, I knew very early that my, my mind was um, not on myself as a performer as much as the creation around me and, you know, learning from the other directors and choreographers I was working with. I had a dance company called Theater Dance Collection that toured with the wonderful National Endowment when we used to have a National Endowment. Um, that we really still supported do. arts. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it meant a lot to my growth and really? the, the, the growth of a lot of other people that... Um, that would not have otherwise had careers, I think, and that company nurtured six or seven of us, actually, and um, so I was able to make a transition into doing commissions because of the profile of that company, and did, you know, American Ballet Theater and some commissions, and then eventually was able to um, get into the commercial arena, and I think it's, it's just a different path for everyone, you know, but I, I think it's now we have videos and everybody wants a video you know we didn't have to do that um, when I was sort of coming up but I just keep hoping for you know that there are more arenas opening up for young choreographers and Jacob's Pillow has one, DTW um, just keep hoping that there would be more places to experiment Thank you so much Anna. Thank you so much for being here once more I have to interrupt you and I just wish we could go on and on and on until perfect time. <laughs> <laughs> just listen to you people sharing your experiences and your knowledge with us, but unfortunately it has to end and I have to say that this is the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And this seminar has been on the playwright, director, choreographer. And I can't tell you how important and how knowledgeable what they have had to say has been to all of us. Thank you very much for being here.